Good morning, Grace. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 9, verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Good morning. I was asked a question this morning that reminded me of something. And just to sort of give you a, help you set your bearings or get your bearings right for this passage and this sermon. Um, the, 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 this passage talks about seeing, the ability to see and the need to be able to see, to recognize Jesus for who he is and to trust in him for who he is, namely as the Christ. Next chapter, uh, which you know will begin next week, chapter 10, it's going to talk about hearing. We need to have ears to hear, to hear the words that Jesus speaks as he means us to hear them, that we would believe in them and receive them as words of life. In chapter 3, talked about being the need to be born again, to be able to receive Jesus as the Christ. And the, the main point that I am bringing these up for at the outset is that all of them have certain nuances that we need to understand. They they mean to help us see certain differences about what it means to come to Jesus or to trust in Jesus or how we do that. But they all have a common thread as well. And I want you to listen to the sermon this morning with that common thread in mind, namely that we need God's help. Something in us, because of our sin, because we're born dead in our trespasses and sins, needs to change in a way we're powerless to do on our own. We need God's help to do this in order that we would trust in Jesus and be saved. And so this is about seeing. Next week is about hearing. We've already seen the need to be born again. There's this light and dark. We're born in the darkness and need to be brought in the light. John does this in a lot of different ways to help us to see our need for God's help. So, I told you all over a month ago that I was going to wrap up John chapter 9 by taking a closer look at two of the bigger, one at the beginning and one at the end, theological ideas introduced in this chapter. Last week, I preached on the first, the cause of the blind man's blindness, along with God's relationship to human suffering in general. This week then, as promised, we'll consider the second Jesus' explanation of the Pharisees' inability to see Jesus for who he really was and the solution to that problem. So last week was mostly about where blindness, spiritual blindness comes from. This week is mostly about where spiritual sight comes from out of that blindness. So last week, like last week, Jesus didn't tell us at the beginning of John chapter 9 everything there is to know about spiritual blindness. He did provide some important pieces. In the same way, this week, he doesn't tell us everything we might need to know about spiritual sight, but he does give us some important pieces. The main takeaway, or the big idea here, I mean, is that recognizing our spiritual blindness, recognizing that we are spiritually blind from birth, that that's what our sin does, is a prerequisite to being given spiritual sight. And the main takeaway, then, is to humble ourselves before God and to learn to see the whole world through spiritual eyes. To help you to see this in the text and apply it to your lives, four parts to this sermon. Here they are. We'll consider the judgment 
that Jesus refers to at the very beginning of our passage in verse 39. Second, we'll consider Jesus' distinction between the two different types of blindness. Third, we'll consider Jesus' distinction between, or, or yeah, Jesus' distinction between the two different causes of spiritual sight. And then finally, the necessity and practice of looking at everything, every aspect of life, every aspect of who you are and the world around you and the God who made us through new spiritual eyes. Let's pray that it would be so. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in one sense, this is a straightforward and simple story of a man who was blind and healed by Jesus, which caused a lot of commotion and confusion among the faithless. It's a simple story of a man who was blind and made able to see, both physically and spiritually. It's a simple story of those who refuse to accept the sight that Jesus came to bring. On the other hand, within it are some of the most profound questions of life. Why, why is this world the way that it is? Why is there so much difficulty and suffering? Why do some people trust in the Lord and some reject him? How do we go about coming to faith in Jesus? Remarkable stuff here that John gives us as he records Jesus' words and interaction with this man and his parents and neighbors and religious leaders of the day. I pray that I would have been faithful to highlight all of that for us in a way that is honoring to you and good for us and that that would continue this morning. And I pray that the practical result would be that in every way you would transform us as you mean us to be through this text. I pray that for the unbelievers in this room, they would come to see more clearly the need to ask you for sight, for you alone can give it. And for Christians to be the kind of people who proclaim the good news through which you give sight to the blind, no matter the cost to us. And for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, I I pray, God, that we would seek not just initial sight, but increased clarity of vision, that we might recognize all as you mean us to, that we might see everything the way you see it. For that is the promise that you have made us and the work you are doing in us. May we press into that with all that we have. This Again, this sermon and this text, and most importantly, your Holy Spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. As I said, there are four main parts to this sermon, and the first is the judgment of which Jesus spoke at the very beginning of our passage. The idea of judgment is an important one throughout John's gospel. I spent a little bit of time in this this week. Most of that won't show up in the sermon. It's beyond the scope of it, but more than 25 times, John refers to judgment. It's a big deal. It's it's an important idea for him. And rather than unpack that and the relationship between all the different places he talks about judgment, I simply mention that to help you to see the need to lean into this. This is one of the key themes for John, which means we need to lean in to get out of it what he means us to. So look at verse 39 with me, the very beginning of it anyway. Verse 39 begins by saying, by by John quoting Jesus, who said, For judgment I came into this world. It's important to ask what Jesus meant by this. What did he mean by judgment? What type of judgment? What did he come to judge? 
What are the practical effects of his judgment? What if he judges one way versus the other? And what does this, how does this relate to verse, chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 12, verse 47? And there are actually others like that. But how does it relate to the other passages on judgment, like those two at least? Let's work backwards, beginning with the other two passages. As we saw in John chapter 3, verse 17, it says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That sounds, at least on the surface, a lot like Jesus did not come into the world to judge it. And if that isn't clear by itself, consider chapter 12, verse 47. Jesus said even more plainly, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So what gives? Did he come to judge the world or not? You may remember from our time in John 3 that the point of the passage was to reiterate the fact that Jesus didn't need to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn the world because the world already stood condemned on account of sin. Judgment had already been pronounced by the Father on the world, which is guilty in Adam. Jesus came to announce that to the world, that the Father had found them guilty of sin in order to offer himself as atonement for their sin. That is, he came not to determine people's guilt, but to announce their guilt and to save them from it. In the same way, in chapter 12, Jesus stated that his primary mission was to rescue the already judged, condemned world from its guilt, not to determine its innocence or guilt. One of the keys to understanding how that those passages relate to our passage for this morning is in grasping why did John feel the need to keep saying this? Throughout his gospel, John keeps saying this. He keeps talking about this. Why did he feel the need to continue to say that Jesus did not come to judge or that he did in certain ways? Why why does this keep coming up? And the answer is because when Jesus came, people felt judged, and John wanted to explain why. People regularly felt as if Jesus, when they encountered him, was there to condemn them. But that's always what happens, Grace Church, when sinners stand in the presence of a holy God. We might not always recognize that that's what's happening, even as many in Jesus' day didn't, but that's always what happens. Jesus' coming in perfect righteousness simply revealed what was already there but hidden from the world, namely guilt and condemnation for sin. Apart from Jesus' presence in their lives, people were able to trick themselves into believing they were right with God. But when he came, their false understanding of themselves was exposed. And this left them feeling judged. With that understanding of those passages, we can see that John, the beginning of 939, is saying the same basic thing, just from the opposite angle. Those passages, the ones I quoted, say this. Jesus didn't come to judge. All mankind has already been judged and found guilty. He came to announce that judgment and to offer a solution for it, namely himself. And in doing that, people felt judged. This passage, ours for this morning, Jesus did come to judge, but his judgment in this sense, as we'll see, was living and teaching in such a way that forced people to press their understanding of things against the truth, him. John worded it in 319 like this. Listen to this, Grace, because this is just another way of saying what our passage for this morning says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. 
The point of the second half, the second half of 939 is the same. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world. And here's the key that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Well, that introduces two more important distinctions. First, there are two different kinds of people. The world is divided into two different kinds of people. And second, there are two causes of new spiritual sight. Let's consider both. First, two types of blindness, two types of people. I was at a conference a while ago, I think I've shared this with you, where one of the speakers noted that one morning he was asked, how are you doing? And he said, I'm I'm doing great. I feel great. Only later that day to find out that he had cancer. His feelings about his health were a poor indication of his actual health. In that way, he was blind to how his how he was really doing. One time many years ago when I was a youth pastor, I know I've shared this as well before, I shared the basic gospel message with a group of students around Christmas time. God is greater than you know, I said. You've sinned against this God. The wages of sin is death. You deserve to be punished for your sins. Jesus came to save you from your sins. And that means Christmas time is really about a baby who came to die in your place. Fairly straightforward stuff. But at that Last idea, this idea of Christmas, at Christmas, the cute little baby of Jesus in the manger would grow up to die for us. And hearing that, one of the girls who was from the community, not really a part of the youth ministry, audibly gasped. In that moment, she came for the first time, perhaps, to realize that she was blind. I had someone come up to me at the farmer's market who found our Gospel for Kids booklet. Maybe you've seen that. Really colorful. Matt designed it. It's a neat tool for parents. She found it on the table, and this person was appalled to find in it the idea that kids are born sinners, Romans 3.23, and deserve the wages of their sin, Romans 6.23. This person had not yet realized that they were blind. The world is filled with, as Mike shared, Pastor Mike shared in his exhortation, people deeply, deeply offended. If any aspect of their desires or inclinations or self-understanding are called into question, much less condemned according to the word of God, they don't yet know that they are blind. I met with someone for years. If you were to have made a, if you right now were to write down your top 10 list of the most sinful sins, all of you made one, I can almost guarantee that this person had checked off at least five or six of 10 and felt overwhelmed and often crushed by the guilt that went with it. This person realized that they were blind. I met, I grew up believing I was okay with God because I wasn't as bad as the really bad people, which apparently was a list that I had made in my head. I didn't know I was blind. Grace, while we are all born spiritually blind on account of our sin, the main distinction between people in this world is not between the blind and those who see, at least not initially. The main distinction initially is between those who know they're blind and those who don't. That is a big deal. In coming as the light of the world, Jesus came to help people see their blindness and to offer them sight, to judge them. He came as the true eye test and the perfect prescription for every eye ailment. Lots of people believed lots of things about their ability to see and what they saw with their eyes. But Jesus came to judge the legitimacy of their claims and offer help to all who would receive it. In our passage, we're given an example of both one who knew or came to know he was blind 
and some who didn't. The man Jesus healed is a perfect example, the first type of person, the one who, one who came to know they were blind. As I've mentioned several times throughout John 9, the man's physical blindness was a clear, visible picture of his and our deeper problem of spiritual blindness. And Jesus healing him from that, from his physical blindness, was a gift of God to help him and us to see his need to be healed of his spiritual blindness. I've said that many times. The man clearly felt his physical blindness from birth. But in our passage for this morning, we can we can see him beginning to feel his spiritual blindness, even before he understood its true nature. This stands out from the simple fact that he repeatedly acknowledged his ignorance. He came to know quickly that he didn't know much. The man knew that he didn't know how to cure his own physical blindness. For that reason, when Jesus offered him a solution, as goofy as it must have sounded, hey, hey, brother, I'm going to spit in the dirt, make some mud, wipe it on your eyes, and after that, you're going to go and wash in a pool. As goofy as it must have sounded, he humbly complied. So he went off and washed, John 9, 7 says, and came back seeing. When asked by the Pharisees whether or not Jesus was a sinner, the man once again admitted, I I just don't know. I don't know. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I do not know in 925. And when Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man admitted he didn't even know who that was until Jesus told him. Once we come to recognize our blindness, Grace, and before we're granted spiritual sight, we know for the first time the depth of our ignorance. We know for the first time the depth of our inability to see. For the first time, we can see that we can't see. It's like picture the little kid in your house who all they've ever done on the piano is play chopsticks, and they're pretty impressed with themselves. I I vividly remember fifth grade band thinking we killed jolly old St. Nicholas. Like, I don't know if this has ever happened better than what what just took place. And then you hear Ginny play, (laughs) and then all of a sudden Chopsticks and Jolly Old St. Nick don't sound quite the same. This man gives us a picture of this. Once we recognize our blindness, we can begin to see the depth of our lack of sight. But it is only those who can see their inability to see who will turn to Jesus for help to see. That's a lot of C's. Let me say it again, though. It is only those... It is only those who can see their inability to see who will turn to Jesus for help to see. Acknowledging our blindness is a prerequisite to gaining sight. Well, having done so, the once blind, now seeing man, was finally ready to truly see. And so he did. Jesus opened his eyes and his immediate response was to worship. Acknowledging this, Jesus said to him in the beginning of our passage, that's why I came, that's why I'm here That's what he said to this man. I came to this world that those who do not see might see, and now you do. Grace, do you really know that you, your kids, and your grandkids, and your neighbors, and your coworkers, and all mankind are born spiritually blind, unable to see God for who he really is, themselves, and you, yourself, as you really are? Do you know that's why everyone does what they do from birth? We're blinded. In our sin, do you know that no one can gain spiritual sight until they admit, till we admit we're blind? And do you know that only Jesus can give spiritual sight, which he came to do for all who would acknowledge their blindness to him? Do you you know those things? Do you live in light of those things? 
Our text helps us to see what it looks like when someone does. But it also helps us to see that many don't. That is, there's another kind of blindness, or rather, another kind of blind person. The kind of person who doesn't know yet that they're blind. Jesus explained that he came not only that the blind might see, but also that those who see might become blind. Having just overheard what the what Jesus said to the man born blind, and having just witnessed his healing and his worship of Jesus, the Pharisees, evidently lingering somewhere nearby within earshot, it's like they popped out into the scene and said, hey, are we also blind to Jesus? The basic idea seems to be this. The Pharisees knew that the man, the blind man, was largely ignorant of the things of God. They knew that. They knew he wasn't very educated in the scriptures. They they knew he wasn't well-trained. And in that way, it made sense to them that Jesus would refer to him as blind. And in that way, it would make sense to them that Jesus came as a rabbi to instruct them and help them to see. That made sense. But in contrast, the Pharisees understood themselves as learned, as educated, and informed concerning the things of God. They were not blind, they believed. They could see, they thought. But they felt judged by Jesus, and so they scoffingly, incredulously, wondered whether Jesus put them in the same category as this blind beggar. We've seen this haughtiness play out in the Pharisees throughout John's Gospel, and in chapter 9 in particular, in contrast with the man born blind who over and over admits he doesn't know and doesn't understand, who regularly acknowledged his ignorance, the Pharisees continually express their misplaced confidence in their own false understandings. Some among the Pharisees knew that Jesus was not from God. Some said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was a sinner, according to verse 24. And they knew that the man's blindness was due to a sin, and therefore he had nothing to teach them, according to 9.34. The Pharisees believed they could see they were unknowingly blind. And to make things worse, not only did they not recognize their blindness, but when Jesus showed up to tell them so that they could be healed, they refused to believe him. And for that reason, they were incensed that Jesus would accuse them of being blind. And so in response to their question, therefore, Jesus said, if you were blind, he said, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What Jesus seems to mean is this. If you knew you were blind, Pharisees, you would admit it, and you would turn to me, and I would give you sight, and you would believe in me, and I would take your guilt away. That's why I came. But since you are unwilling to admit your blindness, since you claim to be able to see. Your eyes remain closed to the salvation standing before you. And so the condemnation I came to rescue you from remains on you. They were unknowingly blind. So what are the causes of sight? Why did the man and not the Pharisees receive sight? We considered the cause again of the blindness last Sunday. This morning, again, we'll consider the cure. How was it that the blind man gained not only physical sight, but spiritual sight as well, while the Pharisees remained blind? As I mentioned in the beginning, there's an immediate cause and a final cause. Let's consider each. The common denominator in the Pharisees, the conference speaker that I 
referred to just a minute ago, the person at the farmer's market, the world at large, and me, the common denominator in all of us, is a type of pride that gave us false confidence in ourselves and in our lives. Our pride kept us from recognizing our blindness, and our blindness kept us from seeing what was really real. In contrast, we saw that the man, the blind man, was marked with humility. If you want to see grace, you must begin to humbly acknowledge your blindness. As the Pharisees warn us of pride and the dangers of pride, the blind man calls us to humility. The immediate cause of his ability to see was his fact that he humbled himself and cried out to God. But having clearly seen that it is only once we know we are blind that we will seek the help we need, and having clearly seen that it is pride that we're all born into that keeps us from seeing that we can't see, we still need to ask, where does that humility come from that allows us to seek sight in Jesus? Where does that come from? Why did the man find it, but the Pharisees didn't? The answer, Grace Church, is Jesus. And that's I mean that in two different ways. First, the answer is Jesus in the sense that it is often an encounter with someone who can really see that people recognize their blindness. The conference speaker needed a doctor with special instruments who could see in a different way to reveal to him what he couldn't see on his own. I needed a teammate who shared the gospel with me in winsome and clear ways so I could see that I had been blind for as long as I had. And the man born blind needed Jesus to show up and stand in front of him to put on a display of wisdom and mercy and grace and power of God before he was able to recognize his deeper blindness. In simplest terms, that's what the judgment of verse 39 is about. Jesus came as the one with perfect sight to exemplify and describe the truth of God and man to the world revealing sin's blinding effects so that the world would turn to him for healing and forgiveness. Jesus came as the one with true sight to describe what it looks like to really see to the world. And that's why holiness and evangelism are so critical for the church. That's why you and I, those who have been given spiritual sight, need to live in the light and share the gospel with those who remain spiritually blind. God has chosen to use us to show the transforming power of the gospel through our godliness and through our proclamation of the gospel to open the eyes of the blind. That leads us to the second component of Jesus being the source of the humility we need to see our blindness and to cry out to God for healing. Ultimately, as John repeatedly highlighted throughout his gospel, all of that, all of that comes through the sovereign grace of Jesus. I read a a commentary on this this week, and the author summarized it like this. I love this. Listen to this, Grace. In John 3, 3, Jesus says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In John six thirty seven, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in verse 65, he says, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So coming to Jesus is a gift. We don't do it on our own and then get the gift. Our coming is the gift. Or in John 10, 26, Jesus says, You do not believe because you are not a part of my flock, 
And in 847, he says, the reason you do not hear my words is that you are not of God. And in 1837, he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So listening to his voice and our hearing his words and our believing on him are all owing to something that went before, something God did. That's the end of the quote. Our passage for this morning is yet another expression of God's of the sovereignty of God in giving the humility that leads to the recognition of our blindness and through that, the sight that leads to faith and through that union with Christ that leads to salvation. Just as we saw in last week's big theological point, there's some measure of mystery as to how the two things can be true at the same time. We must humble ourselves in order to see our blindness. And second, God is the one who gives humility. But there's not mystery in the fact, in John, that both are true at the same time. For some, this is a point of frustration and difficulty. But without exception, John presents this as a point of clarity and comfort. Not as a doctrine to be embarrassed or uncomfortable with, but as one to embrace as hope and life-giving. We are responsible to humble ourselves before God and to look at him with eyes of faith. And at the same time, the ability to do that is a gift from God. It leads us to the fourth and final point. The theme of sight in blindness is an important one throughout John's gospel as well. Judgment is important, so is sight in blindness. Typically, as is the case in chapter 9, Jesus or John are speaking of it in relation to the Jews and the Jewish leaders' inability to see Jesus for who he is. They're not trusting in Jesus as the Christ, and John and Jesus are trying to explain why. More broadly, they speak of sight or blindness in relation to the blinding effects of sin, which keep people from receiving Christ and finding life in him. That is, the general principle here is that we need to be given new spiritual eyes in order to see God for who he is, ourselves for who we are, in order that we would trust Jesus and be saved. That's the the general principle, the, the main thing John is getting at. But more than just that. What I've hinted at a few times, I want to make explicit now. Hinted at in past sermons and John. The new spiritual eyes, Grace, listen carefully. The new spiritual eyes, which come to those who humble themselves according to God's sovereign grace, and which allow us to truly see God and respond to the gospel in faith. Those eyes don't go away after our conversion. We we need them to be converted and initially to believe in Jesus and be saved, but they don't go away after our conversion. They stay with us for the rest of our lives. And in fact, one of the great promises of God is that not only will we receive them, that we would believe and be saved, but that he will continue to increase our vision, the clarity of our vision. We go from not being able to see at all to needing a pretty healthy prescription. And that prescription, God gradually lessens and lessens our need for. Our glasses get thinner and thinner. That's what sanctification largely is. What does that mean? We need to pray for new eyes, for conversion, for ours and for others. But what I want you to see now is that we need to continue to pray for increased spiritual vision for the rest of our time on earth. We need new eyes to see God initially, and we need renewing eyes Eyes being renewed to grow to see God and ourselves in the world as it really is. Even though every Christian 
has new spiritual eyes, none of us yet have perfect spiritual sight. You with me, Grace? We get even more practical. Therefore, I urge you, pray. Pray, Grace, constantly that God would help your help your spiritual vision to increase. Three main ways. Help Pray that God would help your spiritual vision to increase so that you can better see his holiness and his glory. Start there. More than anything else, that will shape the way that you live. Think about this with me. Even a moment's glimpse, one moment, you get one minute, you get one moment's glimpse into the glory of God as we will experience it in heaven, or one moment, just one minute, to experience God's wrath as many will see it in hell, will shape everything about us. The key for understanding, for us to understand, is that God is just as glorious and wrathful right now. What we lack is the eyes to see it for what it is. He doesn't become more glorious in heaven or more wrathful in hell. We just have eyes to see it in a way we don't know. What we need is greater spiritual vision. He has revealed this to us in his word. We, we need better eyes to see. Just think about this. With them, if you had a moment to, to grasp truly the glory of God or the wrath of God, who or what would you fear? What experience would you encounter in this life that would cause you fear? And the answer is none. What command would be burdensome when you know truly the one who commands it? What could compete for our affection and joy? What would we want to pass on and train in and praise more to our kids than God? That's the first area. Pray first for increased vision for God and who he is. Second, Christian, pray also that God would help your spiritual vision to see sin as sin. I know that we all have certain sins that truly disgust us, usually the ones that other people have. But we all have sins that truly disgust us. But the fact of the matter is that just because our spiritual sight, the fact of the matter is that because our spiritual sight isn't now what it will be, even our greatest experience of disgust pales in comparison to what it should be. You know that? Picture the most repulsed you've ever been by any sin. And know that because your spiritual sight isn't yet what it will be, whatever level that was pales in comparison to what it should be. Sin is far more vile than we've ever seen, and we need better spiritual sight if we are to co- if we are to properly cultivate proper reviling. But that needs to begin with us, with you and me. We never see the sins out there properly. You'll never see the sins of others, your your sibling or your spouse or your friend or the world around us. You'll never see the sins out there properly until you see the sins in here properly. Until, like Paul, we understand that we are the foremost among sinners. We won't be able to see the sins of the world as God would have us. More importantly, though, we'll never see the amazingness of grace of Jesus. Do you know that your ability to see the amazingness of the grace of Jesus is directly proportional to the heinousness of the sin, your ability to see the heinousness of your own sin? And so ask God for better eyes to see your sin. Sin in this world. Once, he, once God grants increased clarity of spiritual sight with regard to sin, and as he brings together a right view of our own sin and the grace of Jesus, our concern for the sin of the world will find its proper motivation. The glory of God, and the good of the lost. 
It'll reach its proper height far above what it currently is in disgust and compassion and lead to its proper response, fearless proclamation of the truth and love to the ends of the earth. It is there to be seen, but our vision must be cleared even more. Lastly, pray that God would also help your spiritual vision as you look at the world around you. Pray to have the vision to see the heavens as declaring continually the glory of God. They are. We just need eyes to see. Pray to have vision to see your children as the divine image bearers that they are. Pray to have the vision to see math as an extension of God's unchanging nature. and Pray to see to have the vision to see good music and art as an expression of God's beauty in the world. Pray to have the vision to see the different spheres that God has made, family and the church and government, society at large, as the gifts from God that they are when they aim are aimed properly at their God-given mission, using their properly using their God-appointed means. Pray as well, on the other end, to have spiritual vision you need to s- recognize where they're out of whack, your own home, your family, your marriage, your church, your government, or your society, where they're out of whack and need God's people to call them to repentance. Pray for God's help to have the vision to see conflict and reconciliation as you ought. Sexuality and finances, ethnic division and unity in heaven, abortion and adoption, the nature of nature and roles of men and women, government corruption and the imperium of Jesus, and all other areas of life as God would have you. Pray for clarity of spiritual sight in each of these areas in order that you would live more fully in light of what's really real. And pray not only for your own sight, but pray collectively for us as a church and for the church, the universal church. Because when we're transformed together, we have an even more powerful witness to the world and paint an even fuller picture of the power and grace of God. So pray, Grace. Pray for increased spiritual clarity in each of these areas and more and others and all of them. And as you do, ask the Spirit to bring one to the surface for you. Write this down. Make a note of this. Do this today, please. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring one of these areas to the surface for you, that you might not only see it more clearly, but live in light of it more fully. The final aim of improved vision isn't simply or merely a changed perspective, but a changed perspective leading to a transformed life, family, church, and world for the glory of God. Here's the simple summary and conclusion. Jesus came to the world. He came to judge the world in the sense that he came to help the spiritually blind to know they are blind in order that they might see. New spiritual sight comes when we humble ourselves according to the sovereign grace of God. And through new spiritual sight comes overwhelmingness at the holiness and glory of God, leading to brokenness over our sin, leading to throwing ourselves before Jesus for his mercy and grace to be saved, leading to his receiving of us in our faith as forgiveness of sins and new life, leading to greater spiritual vision for all things, leading us to a longing to obey all of Jesus' commands in all of life for the glory of God for all of the world.